0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. It's going to a place and having a passion to go to a place that might be distressing for you in order to learn and grow.
1: <laughs>
0: and then also to be wrong, cultivating a willingness to be wrong. I, can, uh, I always tell you know, my clients, I have been more wrong <laughs> in the last three or four years that I've been practicing radical openness than I have in my whole life. And it's a blessing. And I can also say I'm a lot happier as a human being because it is something that affects your whole being and your whole life. It's
1: wonderful. That was Hope Arnold on Psychologists Off the Clock.
2: We are three clinical psychologists committed to cutting edge, integrative and evidence-based strategies for living well. On this podcast, we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. I am
1: Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schonbrun, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. We hope this podcast offers you ideas for how to live a full and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. So now we've had an episode with Hope Arnold on over control and what it's like to have too much self-control and how that can be, you know, kind of good and bad, but there are some downsides. So the question is, what do we do about it? How do we help people when that's the case? Or or if you're someone who's over controlled, what can you do? Yes. And I think actually a lot of our culture
2: leans in the the unhelpful side of things because so much of our childhood is about increasing control. I mean, everything from the moment we get into the classroom, we're taught to sit down and how to chew and do our homework after school. And all those things are reinforced. And if you struggle with over control, it may be that you've been environments that have actually made it worse or uh, really rewarded you for it. I think that's true.
1: We train our children to follow the rules and they're reinforced for being rule followers. And we, you know, we give them a lot of praise when they break the rules, they get in trouble. And so we kind of learn this rule bound to be rule bound and over controlled. And some of those kids end up having things like anxiety
2: disorders because temperament, for their temperament, that type of reinforcement actually makes things worse. It increases perfectionism or it makes them really worried all the time that they're not getting their homework done perfectly. And you can see how actually our approach needs to be different for people based on their style and and temperament. And for someone that's over-controlled, an approach that's more laxed, uh, humor-oriented, teaching them how to use more animation and facial expressions could be helpful, as opposed to someone that's under control, that would be a totally different approach. So Hope talks about these two different approaches. The one, the one that, uh, acronym that people may be familiar with is DBT, which a lot of therapists are familiar with. Uh, it's, a, it's an approach that's been used for more over, uh, under-controlled individuals. And her approach is called radically open DBT, which is quite different.
1: It's quite different. It's, it's In some ways, it's almost the opposite. In some ways, they're philosophically aligned, but they're different. Um, and I think this is a unique way of looking at it because it really specifically addresses this issue, which is very unusual for therapies, for therapy approaches. So when you said
2: that to me, Debbie, you know what you did? What? You did an eyebrow wag. I did. <laughs> <laughs> you raised your eyebrows. And she talks about the eyebrow wag in this episode of how our facial expression and the animation on our face is part of the way that we connect with each other. And it was, it was interesting because a lot of uh, clients and actually a lot of women in Santa Barbara are doing a lot of Botox, which prevents you from raising your eyebrows. And I've been thinking about after listening to that, I wonder what the consequences are for them in their relationships, but also for them with their kids, because their kids aren't getting that feedback of how to animate their faces quite as big.
1: Yeah, actually I didn't talk to Hope about this in this episode, but I've talked to her before about how when people have a lot of botox, they lose some of that expressiveness on their face and that is very hard for people to interpret. And yeah. I remember seeing I saw this on the news one time that there was a study about botox and how sometimes that does make people a little bit less socially likable if they have a lot of botox because when you're looking at someone and their face is very still, it's really hard to interpret what they're saying and thinking and feeling. Right. So if you're getting Botox, maybe tell your, tell your dermatologist, let me still be
2: able to wag a little. Yeah. Ease up a (laughs) little. Important. Ease up (laughs) a little. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But that aside, I think, I think this episode is, is a great one for both therapists who maybe want to do some of these um, strategies with their clients, but also for yourself, if you struggle with over control, how to loosen up a bit and yeah. Yeah be a little more flexible.
1: We're continuing the conversation now with Hope Arnold, who is a senior clinician and trainer in radically open dialectical behavior therapy. Hope, now we're going to talk about RODBT, and it's the gold standard treatment for disorders related to over-control, which we Mm -hmm. talked about last time. I think we could start with the story of why Thomas Lynch developed RODBT because it's a fascinating one. How and why did he come up with this treatment? That's a,
0: it's a wonderful thing to talk about. Um, um, You know, uh, Dr. Lynch was working with uh, the DBT treatment team and Marshall and a hand, um, and he started to get clients that just weren't getting better with traditional DBT. He started to what is going on here? What is not working? And so he started to notice this dynamic of they weren't really expressing a ton on the outside, but they felt a lot on the inside sometimes. And they were sort of um, maybe a little bit difficult to treat. And they weren't looking like a normal, quote unquote, um, you know borderline personality disorder patient. There was something else that was going on. And so he started to do some research and found people like Lona Clark and a couple of other researchers had started to understand about over and under control. And then he thought, oh, well, there's got to be a way to treat over control, uh, the opposite spectrum of what DBT was treating. So he started to develop radically open DBT and started to do trials, uh, this giant randomized control trial on RODBT uh, efficacy. And it was published. um, And the data is just outstanding. I believe that the number is 1.03% effectiveness, which is like the next closest thing to treat chronic depression, I believe is like 0.53, I want to say. I'll see if I can give you the numbers and we can put them up so that the effectiveness of RDBT is astronomical and what he started to notice is that this over control we don't need to do things like mind read people and validation really isn't that important for over controlled people we actually need to learn to get them to chill out be less rigid less rule governed deal with the threat sensitivity that they have and actually learn to get them to connect and stop being so lonely and so um that's kind of how it started to develop is him noticing that people weren't actually getting better. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think what's interesting about it is that traditional DBT in some ways does the opposite, right? Correct. So it's yeah. worked on things like distress tolerance and sort of being a little bit more controlled in your emotions. Yeah, And you could imagine that for some people that's the opposite of what they need.
0: Right. If you put a overcontrolled leaning person in a traditional DBT group, they're going to learn skills that they either already know and they do really up. well. Right. Yeah. They don't really need to learn to regulate their emotions. They need to learn to do the opposite, which is to, to acknowledge distress, to actually express it, and then to be open about it and and maybe deal with the problem solving in a different way. Yeah.
1: And for me, I trained in in dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, uh-huh. years ago. And so when mm-hmm. I first heard about RODBT, I just had this assumption that like, oh, I, I probably Pretty much know what that is because I know something about DBT. In fact, I was completely wrong. It's it's really not at all the same thing. It's pretty much the opposite. Uh-huh. Pretty much the opposite. um But what's interesting is that there are some philosophical underpinnings of both that are are actually not that different, even though the the form of it looks very different. There's some some similarities. Can you talk a little bit about the philosophy underlying RODBT? So I. I so there is, we do definitely
0: dialectical stances, you know, um, which would be like, I want a relationship and also I'm afraid of one. That's definitely part of the treatment. So that could be um, one thing we do. We also work on skills building as well uh, for um, not emo- emotional regulation, but actually to to learn different kinds of skills. And it's based in Malamati Sufism. And Ma'amani Sufism is the idea of uh, there's, a, there's a practice called self inquiry in ROGBT, and it's based on this idea of like the, called the path of blame, which is hey, what's going on here before I blame externally or before I want other people to change? Let me just look inward and really understand a little bit more about what's going on for me so that I can be a little bit more aware of some of my own biases, even though we can't fully be aware of our biases, and uh, maybe interact in a different way than I have before. So that's what that practice is teaching. In contrast to something like traditional DBT, which is based in Zen Buddhism, and there's a lot more of like acceptance of things. We're actually not getting people in RODBT to accept anything. We're getting a lot of challenges and actually saying, like, huh, you know, I wonder if there's something to learn here. From any given situation rather than just trying to accept it. Mm-hmm.
1: I love that idea of looking within because I, I can't tell you how many clients I've seen where it, they come into the room and they all the problems are sort of about other people or situations in their life. Yeah, Sometimes it feels really hard to get them to maybe take a look at the common denominator, which is, (laughs) right? (laughs) Absolutely. And so not only is that
0: a practice of looking in, but then actually it's a practice of speaking outwardly. So if I do um, the practice and I act, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, you and Debbie and I, since we're buddies, we, you know, maybe we get in some argument about something. I don't like something that you did. And I do my self inquiry or I practice radically openness about it. And I, I start to think about, you know, what's my part in this and what is here for me to learn? And, you know, what's that, all that energy about? And then I actually maybe find something out and I might go and tell you then if I want a closer relationship with you. So I'd actually say like, hey, you know, I noticed this about myself and I'm kind of aware of imagining something about how you feel about it. And, and then I just kind of wanted to let you know and I'm not expecting you to do anything or change, but I'm telling you because I want a closer relationship with you. And Mm -hmm. that's really the practice of radical openness. Mm -hmm.
1: That's interesting. And I think that, that radical openness is sometimes confused with radical acceptance, but that's a different thing.
0: Yeah. So if you want, we can talk a little bit about the difference. Yeah. What's the difference? Yeah. So radical openness is challenging our perception of reality. So we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. So I can only know what I know and I can only see what I see. Radical acceptance is, in traditional DBT, is letting go of fighting reality. It's the idea of being free from um, a way to turn suffering into toleration of pain that can be tolerated a bit. And we don't really, in, in radical openness, it's, it's more like, it's more than mindful awareness. It's going to a place and having a passion to go to a place that might be distressing for you in order to learn and grow. Mm-hmm. And then also to be wrong, cultivating a willingness to be wrong. I can, uh, I always tell you know, my clients, I have been more wrong in the last three or four years that I've been practicing radical openness than I have in my whole life. And it's a blessing. And I can also say I'm a lot happier as a human being because it is something that affects your whole being in your whole life. It's wonderful.
1: So yeah. you're a self-confessed over-control. <laughs> I am. Yeah, this I treatment am. helpful for that. in Own life.
0: Yeah, I think one of the um, important things, if there's clinicians that are listening, to understand is that in order to do uh, RODBT treatment well, we actually you know require that you practice it as well, because it's kind of like saying like, do I really know the skills? Am I really flex flexible and open? Am I receptive to feedback? Am I practicing what I preach. A lot of therapies don't require that, but we really do because we think it's important. Cool.
1: Yeah. Well, one other piece about the Sufism philosophy that I liked was something about it's okay to be ordinary. Yeah. I yeah. That right.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, part of the idea, this uh, idea of the path of blame, it's, it's the idea with okay, that ordinariness is Okay. And ordinary doesn't necessarily mean that we don't strive for goals or try to do our best, but it's more like, do I have to be special? What's so important about being special here? Um, What does being ordinary mean to me? You know, if if you and I were to enter into a dialogue about it, you know, do we have energy about being ordinary? You know, what's wrong with that? And if I'm ordinary, is there anything good about that? Could it come out of you know, this different sort of place of being, like, okay with who we are.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So you don't have to be perfect. You can be human, and that's okay. I actually think I work sometimes on that with my kids. I think a lot of times we get (laughs) into this pressure, like, my kid has to be this amazing person, and I want them to have everything, all the opportunities, like, or that we could just let them be themselves, and that's fine. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we don't have to be the best at everything. We don't have to even be our best selves all of the time, but it's like, what would ordinary mean to us? And if we were to live that, would we be happier? Yeah. How would we treat people that would be differently? Would I be more socially connected or less if I was ordinary? Yeah.
1: So we talked about why DBT doesn't really work well with disorders of over control. What about traditional CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy?
0: Yeah. So that's a, that's a great question. Um, I actually have a lot of clients that have come to me from traditional CBT and they're like, it's not working. Uh, And and that's the thing about it because over control is a biological predisposition and you can't change your biology. You know, if you're born with, y'all can't see Debbie has blue eyes, I have brown eyes. We're not going to be able to change our eye color just because we snap our fingers. You know, we can't really change our biology that way. So one of the things that Uh, We notice in RODBTs, because you can't change your biology, you actually have to work with it rather than against it. And so in this kind of case, if someone comes and they're over-controlled and they're threat sensitive, what we're trying to teach them to do is actually turn on their safety systems, which is based in polyvagal theory. So that's turning on their ventral vagal complex. And by doing that uh, and turning off the threat system a bit, that they can actually feel safe Relaxed, and then the urge when you're in your safety system is to socialize, versus your threat system is irritation, anxiety, and the urge to fight or flight mostly flight, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. avoid. Mm-hmm. And so, what we're trying to do is actually get people to uh, work with their biology to then change their social signaling, not to change their thinking. Yeah, we're gonna have some thoughts and we're gonna have some distressing emotions because we're all human beings and it's like part of the deal. Um, But it's okay, you know, it's kind of like welcome to the human race. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the other part that CBT doesn't really account for is the biology, but it's, it's kind of like language doesn't come on for about 200 milliseconds. And we're getting all of this sensory input super quickly at around four to seven milliseconds. So you have this sensory awareness that's happening. And if you're really threat sensitive, before you can even talk you feel the threat and so that's why activating safety is so important and how you can't actually think your way out of that you actually have to change your biology to then act differently
1: that's right that's like joseph ledoux's work about how we the emotional parts of our brain sort of get activated before our frontal lobe can catch up and figure out what's happening and and understand it intellectually Well, cool. I should check that out. I actually am not familiar with him. The emotional brain. Check it out. It's interesting. Yeah, it takes a second to get into the higher level processing, but there's a lot more that happens before that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So so um, this actually might be a, a good way for us to talk about mirror neurons, if, if that's cool. Oh yeah, you know?
1: this is fascinating. And I, I attended one of Hope's trainings. Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So um, because people that lean over control are threat sensitive, what happens is that they are receiving this stimuli and this input. And one of the things that Tom Lynch noticed as he was doing this is one of his clients, You know, if you think about a normal therapist's face, <laughs> let me just step back here for a second and start this story over. If you're thinking about a normal therapist face, they tend to actually look kind of like, and obviously you'd have to see me to do this, but I'll describe it as well. They kind of furrow their eyebrows and they shake their head slowly, maybe to the side. They look very concerned about what's going on. And they're not really giving you a lot of facial expressions. Uh,
1: and we can post us- a video of us doing that if you want yeah. to check it out on our yeah. webpage. page. <laughs> great
0: and one of the um the things then the feedback that that tom got was his client said to him you know tom if you know am i doing something wrong is what the client said and and tom's like what he said if i'm not doing anything wrong why do you look so concerned mm. and if you think about that if someone is a very threat sensitive person and they're reading very therapist like furrowed, eyebrowed, concerned face is a Mm -hmm. problem. They're actually not going to do that well in therapy. The idea in RODBT is to therapists to chill out so the patient can chill out also. So what you'll see therapists do in RO is we kind of lean back we have our little glass of water and we're like, you know, kind of chatting with a friend. It's like, like okay. kind of relaxed. And it's really actually fun. One of the things that I've noticed and, um, as an RO practitioner is that I have way more fun in therapy now than I ever did doing any other kind of therapy because I feel good, which then allows someone else to feel good. Human beings are excellent, excellent social safety detectors, meaning that if I feel safe, you tend to feel safe because you can see that it's genuine.
1: I'm even just noticing, watching you on the video. This versus the concerned therapist, you know, the kind of mm-hmm. yeah, because absolutely. it feels different. Like, hey, let's <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's yeah. talk about that. That's cool. Yeah. yeah, good. And so
0: the other thing that we this this works because there's something called the uh, mirror neuron system, and I kind of let me just do a little bit of explanation about what that is because it's kind of complicated, but it's it's worth mentioning. So. A mirror neuron fires when a person acts or when a person observes an action performed by another person. So if you've ever had the experience of walking down the street and uh, you see a person on the opposite side of the street and they like grimace in pain and you kind of go with them and you kind of grimace as well and you sort of make that face, uh, that is your mirror neuron system firing. And so you actually micro mimicry their pain. And this is why we actually think we have empathy is because this mirror neuron system is on and this is happening in milliseconds. This is so, so fast. So this activates the same brain structures and physiological arousal and experience as the grimacing person. So you actually, your brain is going, Oh my gosh, I'm in pain just like that other person that I see. And so this is why we think that people um, feel empathy and why we think that um, this sort of super cooperative idea and super co- there's actually research that says that we have a super cooperative gene, allows us to then go and help people that we might not even know sometimes because we actually um, don't want them to be in distress and we want to help them, which is kind of cool. So another way to think about this in therapy and is so, I <laughs> we do all these wonderful facial expressions. Uh, one of them is it called an eyebrow wag, and an eyebrow wag is basically and moving your eyebrows up and down. And one of the things I tend to look for uh, in someone that's coming in to uh, be assessed for over control is, is their face moving. If the face isn't moving, they might be over controlled. So, if my eyebrows are going up and down, one of the things that I might know. Is that so? I just did it to Deb <laughs> right now, and and how did you feel when I was doing it? When you're
1: watching me do it, it's like kind of like we're about to do something fun. Yeah, yeah, like, I know. Like we're gonna have a great time. You and lean in, it's like yeah, that's coming next. Yeah. yeah. So an eyebrow wag
0: is a a universal expression of openness, and and a, and it also lets me know I'm not really you know on your case. I'm kind of chilled. Uh, I want to be open and talk with you. I feel really good about it. And when I wag at someone, eyebrow wag, I mean, moving my eyebrows up and down. I actually am kind of like, yeah, this is friendly and engaged. It also activates my ventral vagal complex, my safety system. And it feels like relaxing. And so it's part of a skill that we teach called the big three plus one. But if you go around and you kind of, wag at people every once in a while and that doesn't mean hold your eyebrows up for a long period of time that looks weird and it doesn't mean you know you do it incessantly but if you just do it to yourself a couple of times you might actually see a physiological change in yourself which is really fun yeah.
1: interesting and it activates that sort of calm and connected state of being which is the opposite of the threat system yeah
0: it's activating safety which means i want to socialize with you i want to get closer to you i want to share myself with you
1: which is cool, cool. yeah what are some of the main treatment targets in RODBT? What are you working on in there?
0: Yeah, so, um, well, let me actually step back and and talk about, you know, the focus of the therapy. The focus of the therapy is social signaling. So am I expressing myself in a way that's getting my value, getting me closer to my value goals? So for example, a lot of clients come in and say something like, "I, I would like to have more friends. I'd like to develop more friendships which seems like a wonderful goal to have and to uh, be able to work towards. And so uh, one of the ways that, that we might do that is to work on their social signaling. So, for example, if you've um, ever been walking down a street and uh, you see someone pass you by and they don't acknowledge you, it's a good way not to make a friend, (laughs) you know, because there's there's, like no acknowledgement that you're even there. It's kind of like, what the heck? Or you don't shake hands or you don't, you know, sort of like nod at someone or all of these like little sort of polite signals that we do are social signals. And the idea is that you don't have to feel well to signal well. And I'll give you an example about this. So, um, I sometimes have bad days at work like everybody does. And maybe I've had a bad day and my nieces who I love more than anybody in the whole world call me and I don't answer the phone like, Hey, what do you want? Why are you calling me today? I I go, Hey babe, what's happening? Mm -hmm. Because it's my value goal to signal well to them, to show them that I love them. And that doesn't necessarily mean anything other than me living my values and my truth. So I want to signal in a certain way. So if I want to have friends I probably am going to have to start with a polite smile or a head nod every once in a while because why would someone want to talk to me if I'm not doing those like small things that kind of make us all connected and human?
1: Yeah, that's, you know, I I take more of an act approach to therapy. It just seems like a way of living your values. Yeah. And yeah. and bring you closer to your values, even if your emotions aren't congruent with that. So like if I I had a bad day and I'm grumpy, I'm not, it's not really consistent with my values to walk in the door and just be a jerk to everybody in the house. That's right. Yeah. But sometimes I have to kind of override some of my <laughs> emotions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's
0: what we actually work on with our over uh, leaning clients is because they have superior opacities to inhibit. So they don't actually need... To necessarily emotionally regulate in order to signal well and so they're able to do this quite effectively however a lot of times they don't know how to actually signal what they want to
1: that's a good point it's Mm -hmm. actually kind of the opposite like they're what they need to learn how to do is to actually let a little emotion in maybe yeah so an example
0: of this might be something like a client who's overly has overly prosocial signaling So, a lot of head nodding or wagging or high-pitched voice or something that's going on, and um, what they'd like to signal is interest in someone, but they might be like, yeah, yes, so good to see you. I'm so happy, and yeah, it's wonderful, and I'm really, you know, uh. and it, it sounds a little cuckoo, mm-hmm. for, you know, and I, I mean that in a nice way, but it's kind of like, do you want to go have a coffee with that person? That sounds like that. Or would you like to actually, like, maybe uh, get them to signal more genuinely? So that they can have that relationship
1: more authentic mm-hmm. yeah and more vulnerable maybe even sometimes sure yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. okay mm-hmm. any other treatment targets
0: yeah so we definitely work on um, obviously social signaling is the, is the major thing but you know we do want to make sure that our clients are live and safe and so many over control leaning clients are highly suicidal or have self-harmed in the past that's not just. Uh, clients that uh, have borderline personality or many over clients also do that. So we do work on um, self-harm and over uh, suicidality. And we also work on making sure that people are communicating directly and feeling understood in therapy. Because a lot of times uh, we get clients that say, you know, I've never, I don't get anything out of therapy. I just go in there and talk and nothing actually ever happens. And this is a very act active treatment where people have homework and they're doing different kinds of skills and they're learning different ways to behave. And so it's actually very um, dynamic treatment, I think, not, and you know, there's a lot of like psychoeducation that goes along as well as behavioral changes as well.
1: And a big part of that is the group treatment. Why is the group mm-hmm. treatment important and what kinds of things are you doing in these groups?
0: Yeah, so our skills classes are teaching 30 lessons. And the lessons that that we teach are not skills that people generally teach in therapy. We're working on things like envy, bitterness, forgiveness, how to not be fixed minded or rigid about something, how to not give up sometimes. We're also working on things like maybe not correcting someone if you see a mistake. Um, learning to question our perceptual biases, um, learning how to activate that safety system, like we're talking about actually doing it, practicing quite a bit, and then learning how to signal what we hope is signaling. The biggest thing is to teach intention and signal. The more that we can get them to match, the more likely we are to have fulfilling relationships.
1: Do you use a lot of humor in those groups or what oh, do you? Yeah. Like? <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh my.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So that's the other fun thing about uh, RDBT and being an RDBT therapist in particular is you know it's fun. Like there's a lot of um, playful teasing. It's not mean teasing, it's playful teasing. It's kind of like noticing that there's something sort of odd going on in a particular moment and you actually tease someone like you would tease a friend and it's um and then you get your client teas in your back and it's like a great time and yeah everybody sort of is changing and growing because what we start to know is that people that don't take themselves too ser- seriously are actually generally speaking more psychologically healthy and so giving ourselves the gift of humor can be a really wonderful powerful thing and hey guess what you know we tend to like people that are funny like i don't know that i've ever really met a person that's like you know, I don't like any, but I don't like humor at all. Like, <laughs> right. Never. Ha- I mean, I'm sure there's someone out there, but <laughs> generally speaking, people like to laugh and have a good time.
1: I mean, humor bonds us with each other. I think it makes it fun and it brings, builds connection. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it lines up the therapy, I think, because therapy can be such serious business. Oh yeah. This and why? Great. And why does it have to be? It doesn't have right. to be. hmm Yeah. Yeah. It, and there's that irreverence. I think that's another similarity with traditional DBT because yeah. reverence is used very intentionally. In DBT. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it so shakes things up with people because I think people get in a certain way of being, and sometimes an irreverent humor can just sort of shake them out of it.
0: Yeah. And teasing actually is a wonderful way to give someone feedback without really being um, on their case, you know? Right. It's to kind of like say, hey, this, like, You know, (laughs) it's like if you were and I were um, doing something and you were being extremely directive to me and I would be like, okay, your highness, you know, it's kind of like a silly thing. And you're kind of like, "Ooh," you know, you sort of know what I'm saying, but I didn't actually come out and say, hey, Debbie, stop being so directive towards me. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like letting it be soft and letting it be kind. And also the feedback is very clear, like stop being so uptight about whatever we're doing.
1: And that feedback piece, again, you, you do the self-inquiry where people open up to the feedback. They take a look at things from a different point of view. They sort of think, what can I learn from this situation? Do yes. you do that in, the, in the, the skills group as well, or is that yeah. more an individual?
0: We do that in both. So there's the skill that you're just mentioning. It's called the deaf skill. It's skill number one <laughs> in the skills manual. And it's a flexible mind, definitely. So it's noticing distress engaging in self-inquiry, and then flexibly responding according to our values. Because a lot of times what happens is that people that are over-controlled leaning get very ruminative about something or habitually respond in an over coping kind of way. And what we really want them to do is learn that every situation doesn't have to be the same. It can actually be a flexible response in any, any given situation.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And rather than trying to immediately problem solve or fix something, We're just like, hey, let's step back and look at this and see if it's actually working. Mm -hmm. Maybe we could change something. Is this
1: keeping me stuck, depressed, or sad, lonely, anxious? Yeah. So if it's not working, there's where the change part comes in. Like, let's do what we can do to change it and build a life that is working. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And a connected life in particular. Connection, social connection. That's kind of the heart of the matter. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So I took the styles of coping word pair questionnaire that you gave me, Hope, which I think helps identify if you're OC-leaning or under-control-leaning. Yep. Mm -hmm. But is that how you actually decide that a client you're seeing is over-controlled or are there other ways that you get that information? Well, a lot
0: of times we do give them that um, word choice pair, but that's really not pathology-leaning. We are looking for maladaptive over control. So we also give them three other things. The personal need for structure, um, scale, or test. And that's talking about order and structure and how does someone need to uh, adhere to things in their life in order to feel safe and comfortable. The AAQ2, and I'm going to
1: actually ask you to help me with the, that wording. That stands for what? The Acceptance and Action questionnaire. Thank you. Yeah,
0: ACT. So it's based in ACT and that, um, you know, higher levels on uh, that scale are about experiential avoidance and how much do you not want to feel your emotions. So we're looking for avoidance in that one. And then there's one that's in the textbook that's called the Over Control Global Prototype Rating Scale. And that is specifically designed for over-control, maladaption, and it's looking for these very specific things that are in over-control that would be problems and sort of themes that we look for as
1: well. Okay. So those are some of the formal assessment measures. Are there particular things you're looking for just conversationally or when you observe people in that very first session that might point toward over-control? Absolutely. One of the things I
0: tend to look for is whether or not someone is moving or uh, moving their face, moving their body. How rigid are they uh, behaviorally when they first come in? And if they're not moving very much, then I'm, they might lean OC. You know, that's not always the rule, but I might look for that. I also might look for qualifiers. How much are they using things like it depends or maybe or well, sometimes. Uh, That might be an over-controlled leaning person. And then in general, are they saying things that um, talk a little bit about structure, order, rigidity, rule, governed behavior, things that might get in the way of them making a friend or being lonely?
1: Okay. So if you see some of that rigidity, that kind of thing would imply maybe yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Great. And most, most of my clients are pretty aware that they're doing these behaviors anyway.
1: So once you start bringing it up, they're like, Oh yeah, that's me. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I do. <laughs> and you mentioned that there's a really low dropout rate. How in this treatment, how do you explain that? <laughs> yeah. So, um, it <laughs> is it's very, very <laughs> therapy that people like hate and they flee from because it's painful.
0: Well, the thing about, um, when you start talking to a, high over-control client who's over-controlled and may have been through a lot of therapy or maybe just new to therapy, and they start to, to really go, oh my gosh, that's me. And they identify as over-control. And they go, I actually am this and I think this is the big cause of my issues. Then what will happen is because you've sort of said, okay, I'm OC and if OC is the primary problem and it's maladaptive for me and I want to change this is the therapy. You know, if that's not the problem, you go do another therapy. There's mm-hmm. plenty of other wonderful therapies out there. But if over-control, maladaption is the problem, this is the one for you. So that's the first part. And the second part is, some, is kind of like, you know, hey, uh, it's going to be tough. I'm not always going, you know, we're not always going to be talking about puppies and kitties in here. <laughs> we're going to be talking about some <laughs> challenging things. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's, it's work. It's work and it's also uh, fulfilling work. And so we, um, we ask our clients to commit to the, the full treatment, 30 lessons, and we teach them skills to actually change their life in the way that they choose to change it. So we're always going back to what does the client want, not what's the therapist wants, what's the client want. Is this in line with their value goals? What skills do they need to learn to be able to do that? And then we ask them to let us know if, um, you know, something's not working to come and talk about it and have a pretty candid open conversation rather than just, you know, disappearing or ghosting. Mm-hmm. So that's what really keeps people in just because it is an open dialogue. And, um, that, that is very different than a lot of therapies where, you know, the traditional talk therapy where people are just kind of been talking or a more directive therapy where, um, People are saying, do this, do this, do this, do this. We're sort of letting the client say, these are my issues. And we're working on psychological health, not, you know, kind of we're working on what is, what is psychologically healthy for everybody, not just what is psychologically uh, healthy for that client. You know, that's what the therapist is doing. And then the client has their own goals that they're working on as well.
1: So the motivation is high because it really helps people and once they see that this is their issue, they can have some buy-in.
0: Yeah, yeah. This is help me. Yeah, absolutely. Because, yeah, and you know, if the buy-in's not there, then there are other therapies. You know, we're not saying that this is the only treatment or this is the treatment for everybody. But if it is the problem, then people are kind of like, "Oh, thank God, I'm here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this actually might work." I saw um, a gentleman that had been in therapy for many, many years and um, was just saying, you know, I, I, no one's ever talked to me about this kind of stuff before. No one's talked to me about my social signaling. No one's talked to me about how over-control might be a problem. And I saw another client who said, "Why? where was this when I was 16? I wish that this was here because people that are over control sort of know that this is the problem. They just don't have words for it yet.
1: Well, as a therapist, I can think back through some of the patients I've seen in the past and mm-hmm. think... This is what I should have been doing. Yeah, yeah. Because whatever I was doing probably wasn't gonna really help with over control in this mm-hmm. way. Yeah. And thank you to Dr. Lynch for
0: going through all of the pain that
1: he did yes. to figure this out. You know? Lynch, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can tell him thank you. Uh-huh. Yeah. And now I know for myself I need to learn more. So, and I'm imagining some listeners, maybe some therapists, maybe even some clients who want to learn more. What where, where do people turn who want training in this or who want to find a therapist?
0: So the very first place I'd send you to is radicallyopen.net. That is the international website for radically open DBT. It has training information on it. It has therapist directory. It has a wonderful video by Dr. Lynch that's explaining a little bit more about over control for clients. And then it has a wonderful blog on that. I've, I've written some articles on there and it has links to all kinds of wonderful um things, research, uh, the book, if you'd like to read it, if you, you know, because there aren't a ton of radically open DBT therapists um, in the country. Yeah, yet, but hopefully we're, we're building, we're building, right? Um, What is, is happening is that we get requests all of the time um, from different states and we try to connect people and, um, you know, you can reach out on the website. There isn't a A therapist in your area but hopefully what will happen is even more therapists get interested and there's intensive trainings which are two-week trainings uh, that that do the therapy very in-depth and you have a six-month break and you practice between week one and week two And that's really wonderful for them. There's also people like me that train um, people in either one-hour programs or six-hour programs, like a full day about Radically Open DBT, and just to give them an intro. And frankly, you know, now the books are out, so everybody can go read about it. There's a skills manual and also a textbook as well, which is on New Harbinger, or you can buy it on Amazon also.
1: We'll link to this on our website um, for today's episode. We'll link to the website and also to the books and yes. the articles you mentioned today so that people can find those easily. We'll yeah. post a couple of videos of Hope's fabulous <laughs> okay. examples because they're so fun. You just, you can't capture it on audio. You have to. <laughs> okay. I would love that. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, and thank we- you for coming on. I hope we really enjoyed. I enjoyed the conversation very much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock.
1: You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is
2: www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com.